On today's show, we have Natalie. So I know that we know each other through the the origins of Kapwa Yoga. And I'd love to hear and have you share with the audience how that journey unfolded for you. Well, basically, I um, organized a uh, fundraiser. I organized a fundraiser to support Save the Children's Typhoon Haiyan um, Relief Fund after Typhoon Haiyan, that was in 2014. And basically that was an introduction to the cultural heritage of the Philippines through yoga, song, and dance. And this was a three-part event that featured yoga with live music. I taught it with another Filipino-American yoga teacher named Amy Valdez. I met Amy through Shiva Ray's teacher training. We did it together. And the class was set against this backdrop of music from chant and mantra artist, Christine Hugeta. And she played with Ron Casada, who played the Kulintang, which is this Philippine indigenous instrument. And what I had intended was to share the folk traditions of the Philippines with Eastern spiritual traditions. So it was a mashup of um, my yoga practice ground and uh, Philippine culture. And I wanted to do, paint this picture for people who didn't know anything about the Philippines. I basically wanted to share my heritage with the world. And we closed the event with this traditional folk dance performance from the children's group at Search to Involve Filipino SIPA here in LA, this nonprofit. And because I was so new to LA, I wasn't really acquainted with very many people, especially the Filipino American community. And I reached out to the director of SIPA, Search to Involve Filipino Americans, and his name was Joel Jacinto. And I told him that I was trying to find talent um, for my music and folk portion of the event. And he introduced me to Christine Hugeta, who also earlier that year had organized her own Typhoon Haiyan fundraiser. And that was like, the big moment. It was such a big moment because that's Christine is who introduced me to indigenous wisdom of the islands that are now called the Philippines, the concept of Kapwa. And she also introduced me to an entire community of people like myself, people who shared the same heritage as me and people who were interested in the same aspects of spirituality beyond the religions that we all grew up in. And I can say that the introduction to Christine truly changed my life. I definitely echo that as somebody who was also connected to you through Christine and was connected to the the history of Kapwa Yoga through Christine. And we... Yeah, every time I, I speak with her and every time she shares her connections and expands uh-huh. the definition, it's always so inspiring. So yeah, a lot of gratitude to to both you and her for mm-hmm. continuing to pass the the legacy of Kapwa Yoga. And I'm wondering what it was like for you before. What was life or the influence of your yoga practice like before? 
the fundraiser event and meeting Christine? And then how has it changed and evolved after? You know, it was just so different for me. It, it opened up an entirely new world. And it's because I just had absolutely no idea there were indigenous spiritual traditions of the Philippines. You know, because uh, my parents and my relatives, all my family didn't know about it either. So what was there to be passed down? I didn't even realize that there was a culture of pre-Hispanic, pre-Philippine culture, actually, much less the spirituality behind the land and the people there before it was colonized. So for me, I just felt like, wow, you know, my ancestors were so connected to the land and there's this special part of myself that I had just discovered. Yeah. And that's definitely how it's felt like for me as well, that I, I am based in New York on Lenape land and I have only known yoga through this very specific Soho East Village centric view of yoga that often didn't have Filipino, Filipinx folks. And the one of the reasons I chose the place I did train at is because one of the teachers was Filipino. And just that for me was a big doorway to seeing the connection of why uh, why we are drawn to this practice, the connection we have that goes pre-colonial. And I know for, for you, which is something that was a big uh, learning for me, is the connection of Babayin and Sanskrit, which is the language that yoga is built off of. And I'm wondering how that path opened to you and, and some of your work that is focused on that now. I'd like to take it actually in a couple of parts. Um, first, I'd like to talk about Baba Yin and clarify that um, Baba Yin is a script and it's how we write the characters. It's, it isn't a language, whereas Tagalog is um, a language. And Baba Yin is this ancient Tagalog script that our ancestors used before the Latin alphabet was brought to the islands. It's pre-Hispanic, pre-Filipino. And if I remember correctly, there are other scripts in um, Southern Mindoro, Mindoro, I think, and also the Kapampangans have their own script. So what I am very interested in is the influence of Sanskrit in the languages of the Philippines, specifically Tagalog. And this is all through the works of uh, Professor Juan R. Francisco, who is a very well-respected scholar. He was a pioneer at the Asian Studies Center in at the University of Philippines. And I became really obsessed with finding a Tagalog Sanskrit scholar after I had discovered there was so much Sanskrit within the Tagalog language. You know, in fact, actually there's Sanskrit in all the different languages, Sanskrit derivatives in all the languages in the world. I am also very interested in the influence of India in the Philippines and namely through the lens of contemplative Eastern practices. 
And he actually wrote a book about how the Ramayana, the story of Sita and Ram was actually indigenized in Southeast Asia. Asia. So there's, you know, about four different stories within Southeast Asia where you find the Ramayana indigenized. So that to me was very fascinating. Whatever work that I do will be centered around Juan R. Francisco's work. And in terms of the greater research, what I've determined is actually I'm not qualified to do the work and that I should study Sanskrit on a much deeper level, among other things. That's just a start. So now I'm currently trying to find an accredited uh, Sanskrit program. Otherwise, I'll have to enroll at a university in order to get that accreditation. So my deeper research, especially in terms of something like applying for a Fulbright, for example, uh, is still being discerned. I'm still trying to discern that. It's likely gonna zigzag along my path with, with all of this. And my hope is really to find a mentor in the academic world who's familiar with yoga and also, um, this India-Philippines connection, spirituality, to guide me in the right direction because it's the type of work that I feel like really deserves full attention. Because you could, you know, go as light as you would like within the subject, or you can really dive deep. And for me, being a quote-unquote expert or someone who's quote-unquote the go-to person regarding Tagalog and Sanskrit, that's a much deeper commitment and even potentially my entire life's work if I can somehow, you know, fit it in. And it's my hope that I can do so. But I am also a student of classical Indian and Hindustani music. So it is my great wish to create a body of music that celebrates the Tagalog Sanskrit connection and perhaps um, some mantras in there. So to go back to basically the question of Babayan Sanskrit, I'll, ha I'll have to lead the Baba Yin to uh, someone else. So if anybody's out there, that's definitely up for grabs to tackle it because it's an entire rabbit hole within itself. But also the subject that I'm interested in is, you know, I've barely scratched the surface. So that is also up for grabs. <laughs> yeah, there is so much there. And, you know, that makes complete sense where, we're talking about an influence that spans hundreds of years that, you know, no one person probably is going to be able to find everything in, related to that connection. And I, yeah, I just appreciate that you have that, that transparency in what you do know, what you're currently learning and what you, yeah, what you hope to discern in the future. And I, I hope that for you too, at the Fulbright upcoming. And <laughs> it's been really interesting to see how some of our, our other elders, even in the indigenous wisdom space, are coming into this practice and, and this kind of understanding as well, like with Ateleni from the Center for Violence Studies, getting her yoga teacher certification, and then now having an interest in the sutras and its relation with indigenous wisdom. I think there is so much possibility there. And yeah, I, I also didn't know until we started to connect further with you and Christine, the connection mm -hmm. of music as well between 
Filipino and Indian cultures. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit more to those convergences and also your your artistry as a as a musician as it relates to that. Well, I would say that they are very separate. Um, classical Indian Hindustani and the music in the Philippines. And for me, what I would really like to bring together is classical Indian Hindustani music with some Philippine indigenous instruments weaved in and also some Tagalog and Sanskrit mantras and chants within that. So this is a mashup that I hope to um, that I hope to create to kind of in, embody this connection through my own heritage and my own spirituality, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think um, in the conversation that I had with Christine too, that there is definitely, I appreciate there's a lot of awareness of making sure to honor both cultures and heritages and yeah, and seeing how it can be done in a way that's in good relation. I also know if you're comfortable sharing that there was a specific mantra connection um, that kind of opened that, that journey for you. And if I'd love to hear more about it, yeah. In 2013, I led a retreat in the Philippines. It was in Siargao, which I was completely unfamiliar with. And it's the quote unquote surfing capital of the Philippines. I was introduced to it through this woman that I met through Facebook. And her name is Lila Dasi. And her given name is Louise Albano. And she opened up at a retreat center there. And she first called it Maha Mahal. And I was just so fascinated by that. So she was really the one who planted the seed for me. She's now changed the name of the center to Lotus Shores. But it was so powerful because the meaning of it is um, Maha, which is great. And then Mahal in Tagalog is precious or dear or expensive. And that spoke to me so much, you know, it felt like this world within Tagalog and Sanskrit and also within my heart and also in the land just opened up in those, just those two words. And that was the catalyst for me searching for a Tagalog Sanskrit scholar. And I just became so obsessed with it because I kept finding all these other words in the language that were Sanskrit derivatives. And so I went on a, I was on a mission and it took me a while, you know, cause it didn't come up right away of me searching online. And then when I did finally come across one, R. Francisco's works, I just was so triumphant. And I also couldn't believe it because it's a big ask, you know, I wanted to go like Sanskrit scholar. It was such a niche subject. So I, eventually met Christine and I induced her to that mantra that that Leela Dossi had given me when I was out in the islands and we just started chanting it and I 
set it to a melody and we actually played it at the fundraiser with Ron. And so for a while, you know, Ron and I were doing a lot of things together. He would come down and, and we'd chant Mahamahal with the cooling tongue and the harmonium. And it was so powerful. And I, I also chanted that with Christine at the end of some of my classes out in Malibu. And, you know, people can feel it. I am just so surprised at how open people are and how much they can feel the meaning and the emotions behind that mantra. Yeah, just hearing the story, I'm already feeling the resonance. And I hope there is a world where we can be in community in person and, and feel and chant together and hear the Kulintang together. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, for for me, the connection opened just from the word mukha and mm-hmm. knowing that, you know, in Tagalog, mukha is face. And then in Sanskrit, it's also face and learning my first 200 hour training, learning downward dog is Adamukha Shavasana. <laughs> and then seeing that, that connection and saying, huh, I wonder why that is. And then, and then learning all of this deeper connection through you and the work that you're doing and the, and the, and the people that you've named who have done the work previously, I think I hope that other people feel called to mm-hmm. hear this and to seek more. Yeah. Absolutely. I look forward to sharing it. I was actually have since created a workshop called Mahamahal. I was going to teach it at Sedona Yoga Festival in 2020. Of course, it got canceled. But um, yeah, that will be something that I will be teaching. Hopefully, you know, nationally and globally. Yes, and please, please let us know when you do. And yeah, <laughs> we'd love to support. And speaking of, you know, the future, there is I, a lot of this time has been unplanned and has definitely been uncertain, but I think there is this potential for reimagining what our fields could look like, what the work that we do put our energy looks like um, when the world opens up again. And I'm wondering what what vision you have for your work or even the, the our field in general um, once, once this is all passed through. As far as the greater picture, I can only see this field really getting bigger. My concern is because it's a business, it's turned itself into a business and even a fitness phenomenon, that there will be this loss of uh, the yoga philosophy and this loss of wisdom that really fuels the postures. And I feel that way because all the shapes that we move our bodies into on the mat, which people identify with when they think of yoga, they think of all the different postures. Actually, they are of little importance to yoga and meditation. I mean, they are relevant, but they are of little importance because 
it's really all about being happy and being enlightened. And you don't have to do any of those postures to be happy or to be enlightened. (laughs) And in fact, there's this grasping or wanting uh, of being in these postures in what we think is is perfect, right? Or the way it should be done. But it can be the source of suffering um, because it's desiring something that we don't have, if that makes any sense. Thank you for naming that. I think that is definitely a big barrier to people coming into this path because it isn't yoga is an eight limbed path and asana, the physical practice is only one of it, but that is through Western consumption of yoga, what is most associated with it. And then it doesn't really help that with social media, what gets further amplified is the, is the acrobatics, the, the handstand, everybody wanting to know how to do a perfect inversion and posting that or having these really unattainable postures. But then it's really not about that practice. It's the stilling of the fluctuations of our our lives, of our minds. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. yeah, and I think especially now there is uh, an awareness of that. I think it, with the importance of mental health, body positivity, accessibility, people are starting to realize the and honor the indigenous practice of yoga and, and knowing that it, it, it goes further than, you know, a Lululemon ad and that it really does speak to this ancient wisdom. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think... I think the world is ready for that. I guess the the question I would have is with this this lens, I think that we're both coming from is through our lived experience as uh, Filipino, Filipino ex-folks coming into this practice, do you foresee any challenges of working through it in, you know, what is considered where we are in America as a predominantly white space? I feel like it is a challenge because, you know, a lot of people come into my classes and they just want to get a workout, you know, and I understand that because, yeah, I I feel like I also want to challenge my physical body, but I also want to give people an experience where they can find that peace and really savor it in the end. And when they can really sit in stillness and in reflection for an extended period of time. And that's why now I'm so sentimental about these 90-minute classes that I first started doing back in the 1990s in Manhattan. And what I can do in the future is to just do my best and give people that experience that they want, but also balance it with the stillness and the peace, especially towards the end. And when I can, and when we have this opportunity to practice with each other for longer, then I can really do and teach and guide people in a way that I feel like I really appreciate and is quite different than what everybody is teaching now. Um, I know that you asked me about, you know, how I really see my future within 
what I'm doing in health and wellness right now. And in terms of teaching yoga, you know, I will, I will start teaching classes locally and I am in Los Angeles is where I'm based right now. So I will have a few of those classes, but I will eventually start to hold retreats with my teacher, Kamini Natarajan. She's my uh, classical Indian and Hindustani teacher. She was born within this tradition. And what we would like to do is really introduce people to classical Indian Hindustani music because it is a contemplative Eastern tradition, but also to the traditional roots of yoga. And that's chanting all the different mantras and combining and using those mantras within the yoga class and also making sure that we pronounce the Sanskrit correctly. Because as you know, as Westerners, we kind of adopt these things that aren't really part of the land that we live in or the culture. And, and what happens is it gets a little bit warped and it uh, becomes Westernized. So it's my hope to really get back to the roots of Sanskrit yoga philosophy and present it in a way that will help people with a Western lens really understand it. Yeah, the word that comes to mind is re-indigenization. And I think that is a big process too within decolonization is that learning and unlearning and asking mm -hmm. why things are the way they are. Because oftentimes what we're basing it off of is our, our first teachers, but usually these practices go thousands of years deeper than that. And mm -hmm. a lot, like you said, a lot gets lost in telephone, the game of telephone, also known as colonialism. <laughs> and there's a lot of reconnecting and reconciliation in some cases that mm -hmm. needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I see that both for yoga and both for indigenous Filipino wisdom and, and understanding our, our pre-colonial roots. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean the other thing that I wonder, which is may maybe because I have it as a as an ask to see in the future, is if you've thought about mentorship uh, for yoga teachers, because I see people like you and other teachers who are really focused on how to be a better teacher and, yeah. and more aware teacher and knowledge bearer of this practice that it it would be such a value instead of, you know, this kind of hustle and hustle and grind culture, especially in New York of just getting your certificate and then going to teach at a bunch of studios and just go, go, mm -hmm. go. The plus of this time is that you can actually go through these kind of processes and be trained to be, mm -hmm. to be better so that you mm -hmm. don't just continue this cycle of passing down something that, you know, is, might not be taught in the right, mm -hmm. in the best way. I am still under the process of designing it because what I would like to do is design it. So it will be a Yoga Alliance continuing education 
module. And that way it'll be helpful for Yoga Alliance teachers to get that accreditation. And also because it will legitimize it, the mentorship. It'll it'll make people work harder. I personally would have loved a mentor because, you know, I studied with a couple of different teachers. Shiva Ray, I studied with for many years and I assisted her at her teacher trainings as well. And I was always like basically chasing and hunting down all the senior teachers of, of the, within the Prana Flow world, because Shiva, you know, she has hundreds of students. She can't, she can't want to mentor everybody. You know, you're lucky if you can get just a little bit of time with Shiva. And I just spent a lot of time with this senior teacher and this senior teacher, and also assisting them at the, their Prana Flow teacher trainings. And it was, it was kind of chaotic in a way because I was trying to take all these different paths from teachers who had been teaching for, you know, over a decade and trying to figure out how it would fit into what I was trying to do and where I was at in my teaching career. Yeah. And I think that's a question that a lot of people who are maybe around my experience level. Um, that's a question I think that we have now of using our discernment to find good teachers for our continuing education. Like for myself, for example, I'm interested, last year, my continuing education was trauma-informed yoga. And mm-hmm. my teacher was South Asian and, and from the lineage and, and that felt mm-hmm. really good to have that kind of perspective. And this year I'm telling myself that I I would like to have a, a training that's in pranayama and meditation, mm-hmm. um, but I'm finding the process of finding a program. I mean, now there's a plus because the world is opened up if we're doing it online, but still there's so much Try, trying to find through the noise, the, the mm-hmm. right teacher um, mm-hmm. is definitely, yeah, is definitely a challenge. And I wonder if there's somebody who maybe is new to this path, if you have any advice for them. And then for someone who maybe is around my journey, part of the journey, mm-hmm. if you have any advice for choosing a teacher, using that discernment. As far as finding a teacher, I would suggest, you know, taking classes or really studying the teacher and how you feel when you are around them. Because, you know, there have been a lot of wonderful teachers out there that you hear so much about and then you meet them or you take a class with them and it just doesn't complement what, where you're at at that moment or it, it doesn't really fit. Like it's not a, it's not that that puzzle piece doesn't come together. So that would be my first advice is to just try and learn as much as you can before you commit to any teacher training or studying with them deeply. So that's my first advice about that. 
And it's, it's tough though, because, you know, you're always trying to fit in these teacher trainings with what's going on in your life. So a lot of times, you know, oh, you know, I can't do the weekend modules or, you know, I can't take two or three weeks off work or something like that. So there's always that challenge. In terms of what I would suggest for somebody on a similar path as yourself is to really do the work and have some humility around that, around your intentions. You know, what is it exactly that you want to do? And to be really honest with yourself and to really view the work that you do through the lens of how you can bring greater value to others. What can you offer? You know, what is your gift that you can share? What are you good at and how can you serve them? As householders, we do have a need to also make a livelihood, to make money. So we, we can't have our head and our heart in the clouds about how we can support a greater purpose because, you know, th that abundance and that financial stability is to support our greater purpose. And so there is this balance of being grounded and also staying connected. That makes me think of the phrase being in the world, but not of it and finding mm -hmm. that balance between, mm -hmm. yeah, your purpose and your livelihood mm -hmm. is, is definitely an ongoing thing. And mm -hmm. yeah, I think, yeah, that's something that we're all continuing to learn. Mm -hmm. And I guess I wonder on that same note, what have been some practices for you that have helped you refill your cup and and give you that longevity in this in this path? Very shortly after I did my teacher training, I started working at a yoga studio and there was this Tibetan Buddhist Sangha, this this group that would study together. And because I was already there, I started studying with them. And so I fell into the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And so that has been so grounding for me. And I studied very deeply with them for about five years, actually. So I always, always go back to that path, even though it's not the only one that I have right now, because I take a little bit from different traditions at this point. And I guess that's why I love Nepal so much because it is this, Nepal is this land where Hinduism and Tibetan Buddhism just converge. So for me, I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> so that's been one of my practices for sure. That's always going to be an anchor for me. And I, and I look at my spirituality through that lens. Um, but I do combine it with other practices, namely my, um, my music practice or my sadhana through Hindustani music is, is something that also is very grounding to me. And I, I, and it feels very personal. Like it's not something that I feel like right now I'm going to share, um, because it's, it's basically a meditation for myself. Yeah, I love that you mentioned Tibetan Buddhism because that is something that I would also consider 
one of the anchors to to keep me grounded as well. And I didn't have a formal teacher, but I was introduced to it through the works of Pema Chodron mm. and the practice specifically of Tonglen has mm. been really helpful. And the visualization, I kind of, in my mind, combine it with the Babylon tree and mm-hmm. this idea of breathing in the suffering of others and exhaling joy reminds me of the process that humans have with a tree of taking mm-hmm. in carbon dioxide and producing oxygen and this cycle um, that we have with, with nature and life and then mm-hmm. is reflected through kapwa in each other. So yeah, I, I would say mine is also a kind of a combination of the two and embodiment practices. I think for me had been a big introduction of uh, dance, combining dance practices mm. and um, using it to travel through uh, chakras and going up and finding mm. uh, music that kind of hits that same frequency and just freestyling, you know, listening to my body Mm -hmm. and movement in it. And I don't Mm -hmm. really have a name for it or Mm -hmm. a a way that I could share it with others. But for me personally, it has been Mm -hmm. a very helpful practice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Embodiment through Shiva, Shiva Ray. So thank you for mentioning that. And before we end the conversation, is there anything that we haven't mentioned that you would like to to discuss? You know, if people want to connect with me, I do have a website. Um, It's just nataliemccom.com. And please reach out to me at any time. There's some contact info on my website and you're always welcome to reach out to me if I can be in service to you in any way. Thank you for offering that. And we like to end the conversation with three questions. We say whatever comes to mind first, that's the one to go with. The first one is what is your favorite Filipino word? What does it mean and why does it have a special meaning to you? Kili Kili, I think, is one of my favorite Filipino words. Because <laughs> it's like so silly. And, you know, I didn't know the English word for that for a really long time. And so I would go to school and be like, Kili Kili. <laughs> <laughs> I, like- I love it too because, you know, it's got the it's got the double, it's got the Kili and the Kili. So you say it twice. And, you know, a lot of times in Tagalog, that's how you make things plural is you say it twice. So that's something that's very special about Tagalog. Hmm, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. I love that that's what you picked. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's such a joyous word in that way. I, originally, I thought you were going to say Kilig, which Actually, oh. it's been a trend because two other people on the podcast oh. mentioned Kilig, but you're very you're unique. No one has said Kilikili yet. <laughs> the language is very joyous within itself, but I think that's like the yoga goofball in me, basically <laughs> coming out. <laughs> I'm here for it. Yeah, <laughs> and the second one is how is Kapwa? Uh, showing up in your life these days? 
Well, it has shown up. It's circled back. Coppola has circled back to me because it's just, it was introduced to me through Christine in 2014 and now it's 2021. And what it's done is it's connected me to people like yourself and just reignited this passion within me about the Tagalog Sanskrit connection, the India Philippines connection. But also, you know, I, I feel that there is this likeness of God uh, within each and every one of us. And I, you know, I pray to God to, that I can see that and for that, that I can always remember that likeness of God within myself. And I always pray that, you know, that I can serve God through ser- serving other people. So that is how Kapla has been showing up for me. Thank you for mentioning that. I think that is such a big compass point or North Star to the to the work that we do to know that it has this higher purpose and that it serves to remember the that yeah that reflection of the of the divine of of god in each of us so yeah i really appreciate that reminder hopefully it resonates with everyone who's hearing it today (laughs) and the last question that we ask is what is the biggest lesson that you're learning at this time the biggest lesson that i'm learning is to really be me and it's been very difficult on this path to find how Natalie teaches yoga and how Natalie moves through this world. You know, I'm turning 50 in two years and it's, oh my God, I'm going to be half a century old. So it's like, I've finally starting to figure it out. Not that I figured it out yet, but I'm starting to figure it out. (laughs) I think that is such a refreshing thing to hear to anyone who's listening that it's always going to be this journey of coming home to yourself of Mm. of yeah being who you were truly meant to be to tap Mm -hmm. into that yeah that divine divine funny you know powerful all of those things to embody all of them so I see that in you and I appreciate this this cycle of Kapwa that we have, that in the same ways that you have inspired me in this path to to really walk in it more fully that I, or I hope to, and that my generation of Kapwa Yoga Network can help inspire and encourage the, the important work that you're doing. So I have nothing but deep, deep gratitude for, for you and everything you're doing and really appreciate you taking your time out to be in conversation today. I'm so grateful. And that was today's episode. Thank you so much to Natalie for joining the conversation. All the info mentioned for her Instagram and offerings will be included in the show notes. If you like what you heard and feel called to connect further, subscribe, leave a five-star review for the podcast, and follow us on Instagram at kapwa.yoga. 
We host an IG Live after show the Monday after the episode is released, and it's a great way for you to be involved in the conversation with us. We also just recently joined Clubhouse, an audio-based social platform. You can connect with us there at Kapwa Convos with a K and be in conversation there. This podcast is a part of Kapwa Yoga, a movement and mindfulness practice that integrates my background in dance, yoga, and organizational psychology. You can check out more on our website, www.kapwa.yoga, to find out more about our services. A special thank you to Wes for the theme song and episode production. You can find him on Instagram at ugarias.xyz. Thank you for listening. Maraming salamat and catch you on the next conversation.